you know, I've been wondering because I've, I'm always in a nostalgic mood. That happens whenever I see or hear or remember things coming, especially from back in the 90s. The 90s is just like embedded into my mind. And the one thing that's really, really been stuck in my mind lately, and it's another Australia story, is the video store that we had in our small Australian Air Force base that we lived on. I remember... All right, guys, so let's talk about job interviews and resumes. So, so we're going to show you our resumes, actually. So... In my nostalgia thoughts lately, which I obviously have a lot, I talk about nostalgia a lot on these shows, and uh, that's a, just such a big part of my life, because like I live in my nostalgia, it keeps me happy, it keeps me calm, it keeps me collected the majority of the time, rather than think about the pain and the sorrow and the shit of today's day and age. And one thing that's really been coming across my mind recently is thinking about uh, going through the video stores back in the late 90s. Uh, when I lived in Australia, uh, when I lived in California, and even living out here in Colorado now, uh, you know, especially being a big horror fan, one of the things that we always loved was going to movie stores, Blockbuster, Hollywood Video, or even just the random ones that were on Air Force bases for me, and looking at the horror section. Because a lot of times, if your parents, if you weren't of age, weren't going to let you rent movies, this was kind of your only exposure to horror movies, where all these, like, cases, all these great, great, like, VHS cases, and reading the back and hoping that there'd just be more and more details for each subsequent, like, movie you looked at. And... I remember it was one of the reasons why I loved and was so intrigued by the Friday the 13th series because every single one of those covers all had like the same like silhouette but it's a different it's a, the silhouette with a different weapon and I thought that was so fucking cool to see that on at least like the first four and then after the first four when we get through like five through Jason Goes to Hell then we start getting the really like more creative posters and I just remember being fascinated by the poster of Jason Goes to Hell because let's let's face it whether you like that movie or not that is a bitchin' poster. Demons going through Jason's mask. Oh, man. Like, that is really, really fucking cool, honestly. That's one of the coolest posters in there. And that made me interested in hearing about y'all's story. What posters, what VHS covers in movie stores back in the day really caught your eye? I know they don't exist anymore, and sure, I could name a Best Buy or any other store where they still sell physical movies, but we know it's not the same like it once was. So, Hit me with the stories in your comments or hit me on Twitter. It's at AXDW. That's AXDU. Let me know your stories about looking through the horror sections in video stores back when you were younger. What caught your eye? Tonight, folks, we are talking When a Stranger Calls and Prom Night and T watches a scary movie. And welcome to a brand new full-length episode of T Watches a Scary Movie. I'm T, and of course, we are talking scary movies. I appreciate you tuning in for another brand new episode. Remember, full-length new episodes go up every Wednesday night on the YouTube page at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time at youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. Again, that's youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. As well, you can listen to the audio-only version of this on all your favorite podcasting platforms at half an hour earlier, 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on Wednesdays. Just go and search T-Watches a Scary Movie on your favorite platforms. Now with that, we are starting into something new here with the show because as I mentioned, I'm going to start breaking these reviews up because I know some of you, you like to watch the full show and in that full show like this, we're still going to be talking things like movie news, uh, my cool little intro as well because I want to engage y'all a lot more than I have been and then I'll have my reviews that I've covered the two movies every week like I'm always doing. But 
What I'm also gonna be doing here is I'm gonna start releasing those reviews separately for all of you. For those of you who just don't have the time to go through a 30 to 40 minute show, sometimes a little bit shorter than that. But if you don't have the time to sit through an entire show or listen to it or whatever, I'm just gonna put the reviews out separately on the YouTube channel so you have a chance to see those. So for example, this week I put up When a Stranger Calls on Tuesday. I got the separate prom night review that's coming out on Thursday. Next week, we got a bunch of stuff coming because we're covering all four of the Hatchet films. So Hatchet 1 through 3 and Victor Crowley is what we're talking next week. So those are all going to be dropping at different times. I'll drop the review for Hatchet 1 on Sunday. Hatchet 2 will be on Tuesday. Hatchet 3 will be on Thursday. And Victor Crowley will be on Friday. Along with those four, I have my full-length episode on Wednesday. We'll cover all four movies there that I'm reviewing. So you can watch them however you need to, but keep in mind, the full length episodes will be the only place where you can find my movie news and then my discussion with you every week as well too. So what do we have to discuss this week? What's on our minds? Beyond the fact that I still need to remind you, go to poltergeistandparamours.com and find their Fight Like a Girl, uh, Fight Like a Final Girl collection. It's a great way to support a lot of abortion causes out there right now. Hence everything that happened with Roe v. Wade in the previous week. We absolutely want to support uh, those causes there for sure because 100% your body, your choice in regards to, uh, in regards to uh, yeah, the whole reproductive stuff there now. Y'all are a bunch of ass clowns and the Supreme Court about that, but that's neither here nor there. Support it, poltergeistandparamours.com. Fight like a Final Girl collection, go and find that. So, what are we talking about this week? We got a lot of really good stuff to talk about this week, uh, starting with the fact that the Hocus Pocus 2 trailer dropped. Yes, we found out that finally, after so many fake posters and fake trailers and the witches back and all this shit for the last like decade and a half, two decades at this point of folks just making sequels up, that we finally were gonna get a follow-up to the classes, classic Hocus Pocus classic from the early 90s uh all three of the sanderson sisters are back uh bat midler sarah jessica parker kathy najimy and it's looking good now i guess i say that with surprise uh, of course it was going to look good because the original film is very much like it or hate it um it's a fun fun piece of nostalgia as we were just talking nostalgia in the intro but it's a very very 90s centric thing like you know there's there's hints of grunge and alternative and very meta horror and meta comedy in there and of course we have a lot of big faces of the time again including Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, Kathy Najimy, Thor Birch was getting big at the time as well too um like it's a perfect 90s film and it's one that made sense for a follow-up, honestly, given the nature of how these witches come back. You would think we would have seen a sequel sooner, but we're only getting one now. It's coming out September 30th, I believe, to Disney+. And the trailer gave us some brief glimpses at the Sanderson sisters, who, again, for the most part, are looking the same, but with a total new group of kids who are conjuring up a black flame candle to bring them back. Now, we don't know that much about the story right now, except for um, it's been about 30 years at this point, and these kids are, uh, not kids, these witches are back, and presumably after kids again. Now, could it end up being like the exact same story told over? I doubt it because the trailer didn't really give that impression that it was about like new kids moving to uh moving to salem and being interested in the sanderson sisters matter of fact the trailer kind of gave the idea that it might actually be something a little bit more sinister and i get it we're already talking about a movie to where these witches are after children they're literally going to eat children to stay young and alive but what makes it a little bit more sinister about it is that with the first movie the first movie was all uh, all by accident, okay? Or by accident, I mean it's, you know, fucking Max just being an asshole and saying he doesn't believe in Hocus Pocus and he lights the candle and there you go. But this movie seems to be coming from a more dark place because in the trailer we see a couple of girls who are conjuring up a spell and that spell seems to result in the appearance of the Black Flame Candle and the book and then the return of the Sanderson sisters. So it seems like while it might have been accidental, there's a more than a nefarious purpose behind them coming back it wasn't like max in the first movie who's just trying to show off and 
for that reason, it seems like the stakes could be a bit higher because, again, it's all speculation, but usually in movies to where somebody invokes the witches, or not, not these particular witches, but they invoke a demon, a witch, something evil, they usually have to pay for that. And I'd be shocked. It's a movie on Disney+. Plus. I'd be shocked if we're going to go with something of that extreme to where it's like the end of the movie is the kid has to kill himself, something like that. That's not going to happen. But it does seem like this movie has the potential to come with a darker turn, a darker edge than the original film did. And we don't have to wait that much longer to find out. Folks, we're at the tail end of June right now. We only have about three months, basically, until this comes out. So it's a reality. We're not waiting that long. Hopefully we get some more info on Hocus Pocus 2 very, very soon. So what do we have next here? So uh, I am in my 365 days of horror films right now. Uh, 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 somebody I met on Twitter, Elliot McGuire, produced this book to where it's basically a tracker for a full year of watching horror films. And I've been doing a really good job with it. I've watched so much new horror because... I said I didn't want to put down any re repeats on this book at all. So not that I'm not watching movies over that I enjoy, obviously. I'll do that. Again, my birthday's coming up. So we're going to get Demon Knight and Jason Takes Manhattan in there, of course, and Scream 2 and all that good stuff. But I really wanted to test myself and see, could I actually watch 365 new horror films in a year? And it's going really good right now. And what I actually watched, because funny enough, it just got announced it is getting a follow-up. I watched The Mutilator. Now, if you haven't seen the 1984 slasher, The Mutilator, it tells the story of this young boy who accidentally kills his mom with a gun. And so his father, upon seeing the accident and the carnage that has happened, basically snaps and decides he's going to become a psychotic killer and starts hunting his son and his friends. And, uh... Honestly, it's gained a very big cult following, especially because of the fact that, um, uh, uh, oh God, what is it? Uh, the fact that for an 80 slasher, the gore in it is pretty extreme. Like it's mainstream enough to be a slasher like the Prowler or like Slumber Party Massacre, or like Sorority House Massacre. It's like, it's mainstream enough to be a movie like that. Maybe not necessarily on the level of like a Scream, or a Nightmare on Elm Street, or a Friday 13th, but for a lot of these other ones that did really well on the direct-to-video market, Mutilator was one of those. And the gore that it had in it, compared to a lot of other films at the time, made it a favorite with a lot of people. And it brought back the original writer and director, Buddy Cooper is back. To make the sequel so you know it's actually in tune what the creator here actually wanted for it and we're being told that the movie itself is complete it will be completed in september so when does that mean we're actually going to get it and on top of that we are actually getting returning cast and new cast members who have horror backgrounds too so uh, Ruth Martinez and Bill Hitchcock from the original movie are coming back into it. But not only that, we have Damian Maffei from The Strangers Pray at Night and from Haunt and from the upcoming Texas Chainsaw Massacre video game, which is so dope. And we also have Terry Kaiser from uh, Friday the 13th Part 7. Yes, you might remember he was Tina's doctor as well you might remember him from a little series called weekend at bernie's as well too so there's a good like there's some actual credibility behind this film honestly and we don't know much about it right now i have to assume it's gonna be just a continuation of the original story and the dad's not dead and he's coming back to wreak more havoc in uh in his son's life but i don't know i don't know we're gonna see it's, it i presume that means we get it later this year because the press release doesn't make it clear doesn't mean the film's releasing in september or they'll be done like editing and it'll be complete and everything is september i have no idea they just said they're finished filming that filming is wrapped so i assume that means editing is done in september and we may be looking at like a spring release for the mutilator too but we'll see I, i'm excited for it though because after seeing the first one um do i think it'll become like one of my favorites that i watch on a normal basis like all my other slashers i don't know but it'll probably get a yearly watch from me probably at least get a yearly watch out of that moving on uh, it was just announced during Ghostbusters Day that the sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife, what would be considered the fourth film in the series, is set to premiere December 20th, 
2023. So we already knew that we were going to get a sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife. The film was moderately successful. I say moderately, I don't mean that in a negative way, but the success is very compar uh, comparable to Ghostbusters Answer the Call, and that film obviously did not get a sequel. So it's very interesting to see that this one is for sure going to get one here, but it's also been confirmed that the movie's going to return to the original film setting of New York. We're getting the firehouse back, which not to spoil it, but if you've seen Ghost, uh, Ghostbusters Afterlife, which we will be watching in the all-nighter coming up here at the tail end of July, but if you haven't seen Ghostbusters Afterlife, we were treated to a great post credit scene, a few of them there, but uh, one of them that include Winston Zedmore returning to their initial firehouse to where the Ghostbusters operated out of in the first two films and basically looking to reopen it so it seems that's going to play a big part we have no idea at all what this means for the uh the cast that joined in ghostbusters afterlife like mckenna grace paul rudd carrie coon uh, we don't know what that uh finn wolfhard we don't know what that actually means for these cast members if they're coming back same with our uh, og ghostbusters dan Aykroyd. Uh, Ernie Hudson, Bill Murray, um, and especially what kind of Bill Murray's controversies recently. Does that mean we'd see him back in here? And honestly, I don't think we would. I think he actually wouldn't be featured in this. But the press release is very quick to mention that it's the next chapter in the Spangler family story, which is interesting because that was one of the issues that some people had with Ghostbusters Afterlife. Now, I liked Ghostbusters Afterlife. I reviewed it on the show, and there'll be a link up here for y'all to check out, uh, check that review out as well, too. I liked Ghostbusters Afterlife, but it was very interesting that the marketing talks a lot about this being the Spangler family story when... The first two Ghostbusters weren't about the Spangler family story. And I'm not saying that's a problem. That's not a problem for me in the least bit, but it's just interesting. Cause it's like, okay, you're making the narrative about the Spanglers, but that's not really what Ghostbusters was about. Now, again, not me complaining. I enjoyed what we got, but maybe we could just tell a general story because I thought the story of Ghostbusters Afterlife was very perfectly emotional. You know, I got teared up in it. I thought uh, I, I thought it did a very good job of honoring, uh, you know, Harold Ramis, who played uh, uh, Egon Spangler in the story, but that his friends also got a chance to be involved as well, too. And it's like, well, how much of that story is left to expand on with the Spanglers? Like, I feel going back and looking at and looking more into the, the relationship between Egon and his daughter, especially when Harold Ramis has passed, there's not that much you can do with that. There's only so much you can do with somebody who's passed away they can't do any new footage for you at that point and so i'm hoping that when they say it's the next chapter in the spangler family story they just mean that these kids are front and center again and that's the push here that's what i really hope for it story-wise i mean your man wouldn't be mad about some slime showing back up there let's get a ghostbusters 2 reference going in there especially because there's a good chance this could deal with gozer again honestly i'd have to go back and look at all the years that are marked out in that one scene but ghostbusters afterlife does give the very very big impression that gozer would be back again maybe not an immediate sequel but in a further sequel down the line and a tv show uh whatever and we know there is an animated series and an animated movie that's on the way as well too so i don't think we've seen the last of gozer but i do hope this next film can get away from that information finally we found out there is a strong rumor going around that nev campbell has in fact signed on to scream six secretly now if y'all recall uh, a story came out that it said officially Nev Campbell wouldn't be returning to the role and it basically came down to pay to where the offering that was given to her we weren't told the number but it was apparently well under what somebody of her stature the lead of the series somebody who's been in every single entry who's kept with the series for you know over 25 years at this point um it's somebody who deserves more basically and I talked about it here on the show before to where I support Nev Campbell, but I also still support Scream 6 because it's not like our creators are involved in what Nev Campbell gets paid for that. That's the studio and the that's the studio's role to make all that happen. So 
I was on both sides. I could see both ends here and see what what kind of needed to be done. I was still going to watch the film. I was still excited for it. But there are now rumors that Nev Campbell was able to get, get everything worked out and very possibly has shot a role or is going to be shooting for Scream 6. Now, the more interesting part of this is that there's an even further expanded rumor that states that they had to get Nev Campbell back. That basically there was no way this was going to work without her because... Her, she has a very prominent role, apparently, in Scream 7. Now, we don't know what that means. Because if you think about it, Scream 5 was really Dewey's story. It was really, really, when you get down to it, it was focusing on redemption for Dewey, ultimately. Scream 6, apparently, is going to be focused very much around Gale Weathers, which makes a lot of sense as well, too. Um, because we're going to be set in New York where Gail Weather works, where Gail, uh, where Gail lives, and she's working at this new studio. And we're all, at least, I say all, a lot of us are very much hoping that that's really where the most of this is going to be set around is Gail's TV studio. One can only hope. So it would make sense that Scream 7 then would focus on Sydney. And I know that's that's a ways off. We're talking because Scream 6 doesn't even come out until next March. So that means basically that at the earliest, we're talking 2024. So we're at least two years away from Scream 7. And that would make a lot of sense to me that that one ends up getting focused around Sydney Prescott. So... I can only hope that they made the deal. If not, that's not going to change my interest in the film that much. But I really do hope that that means they were able to make the deal and get her in. Uh, just because they're saying that the gore and the violence is going to be more than it was before. It's going to be the longest entry of the series so far. There's a lot of info coming out right now that's making it very, very exciting to be a Scream fan, honestly. So we'll see what ends up happening with that. And then finally in movie news... Uh, Lachlan Watson, who you might know from the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, has signed on to portray Glenn Glenda in season two of Chucky. Everything just keeps getting bigger with this show. We already had the reveal that not only would Jennifer Tilly's sister Meg Tilly be joining the cast, um, but also we got Joey Pants and Gina Gershon who have joined the cast of Chucky as well too to get us a bound reunion of sorts, which is pretty damn cool, honestly. Um, and the fact that now we are finally, finally, gonna get uh glenn and glinda back in the show that's super exciting that's that's really super exciting to see because um we got to see glenn and glinda last and seed of chucky and since seed of chucky we've had two other entries we have colt and we had curse and we've had season one of chucky as well too and it's just interesting that glenn glinda got like a couple of mentions but outside of that that's about it and now finally 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 she, they, excuse me, they, I got the terminology right there. They are finally coming back. They're going to be on screen. And that poses the question, what other classic Chucky characters could we eventually see showing up? And I ask that because we still have not seen or heard anything about Mike, played by Chris Sarandon, or Karen, played by Katherine Hicks. And I know I'm not the only person who really wants an update on what happened with them. Like, are the comic books accurate, telling us the stories of what those characters had been doing in the meantime? Uh, the fact that, you know, they told all this and Mike got fired and there was an issue with his partner. And I want to know. I want to know what happened. We also know that Laura Jean uh, Choroteski from um, uh, Hannibal fame, who played Freddie, Freddie Lowndes, is also joined the cast in an undisclosed role as well. Um, and I'd say it'd be too much on the nose to think about that red curly hair playing a factor in it. But somehow, some way, I think it will. Something just gives me the idea she's going to be another Chucky. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know for sure. But I'm excited. Uh, season 2 of Chucky is going to debut this October. We're probably going to do a rewatch of the series sometime in September to get prepped for that. But, man, it's so cool to be a Chucky fan right now. I actually just got done pre-ordering the new 4K collection for the first three films that comes out in August, I believe. Uh, because yeah, I need to buy like my sixth copy of the damn Chucky series, but Hey, that's, that's what you do when you're a fan. Uh, but that is going to do it for movie news, folks. Now it's time for us to talk some movies. Please. Ma'am, the bank, um, 
reclaimed this property months ago. You're not supposed to be here. Jesus, Mal, she just offered us some sweet tea. Maybe take like a second before getting right to it. You talking about that whole mix up with a bank? That's been settled. I paid everything I owed. This is still our half. You're wrong. Oh my God, Dante, what the actual fuck? What was this about my flag? You got me all wrong. I've taken care of many boys like you over the years. I don't have a problem with Negroes. <gasps> oh, shit. <laughs> okay, fuck this. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Dante. Girl, I had your back till you started dropping Negroids up in here. It's 2022. We woke. We don't say that shit. Hey, who's that Chris Hemsworth motherfucker with the big ass shake? Oh, ah! Make sure to check out T-Watch's a Scary Movie. You can go to youtube.com slash C slash Scary Movie. And we're on all podcasting platforms. Up next in movie reviews, we are talking the original 1979 slasher horror flick, When a Stranger Calls. Now, you might have heard of this before for a couple of different reasons. First of all, it's based on a very popular urban legend about a man and the ba or the babysitter and the man upstairs. It's a popular urban legend about a young girl who comes over to babysit some kids for a wealthy couple, and she continues getting these phone calls from somebody she doesn't know who basically keeps telling her to check the children, check the children, have you checked the children? And there's different variations of how the story goes. She goes upstairs and the children are fine and it's all prank that they've been playing on her. Um, she goes upstairs and the kids are dead. She goes upstairs and she gets killed. There's been all these kind of variations of that story. I've heard it numerous times and it's kind of funny because the original time I think I heard it was actually uh, in the, uh, in the 90s slasher Urban Legend, which I absolutely love that movie to death. Uh, but it was after that I feel that I kept hearing that story more and more and more because that's really, really when my like my love and obsession of horror started. It was kind of in the late 90s with movies like Urban Legend and Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer were coming out. And it's funny because Wes Craven had said that the opening of the original Scream is very much a tribute. It's an homage to When a Stranger Calls, which has been called, the, at least the opening of that has been called one of the scariest openings in a horror film of all time. So... You might have heard uh, heard about this film as well for the second reason, because they actually did a remake of this film back in, oh Lord, when was that? 2007, I want to say it was now. I think it was 2007 at least. Um, God, that's going to bug the hell out of me because I can't actually think of when uh, when it was here. But I do know... Is either 0706? Might, might have been 2006 there. But um, uh, I think it was 2006 with Camille, uh, Camilla Bell, who starred in that one, and Lance H Henriksen, I want to say, played the stranger in this case. But the story of 1979's When a Stranger Calls uh, tells the story of Jill Johnson, who's working as a babysitter for Dr. and Mrs. Mandrakis. And while she's babysitting the Mandrakis kids, she continues to get these disturbing phone calls from an individual who keeps asking her, have you checked the children? Have you checked the children? And eventually she calls the police who attempt to trace the call to find out that the calls are coming from inside the house and to get out immediately, which already is such a frightening premise to think about. The fact that the killer's contacting you and they're already in the house. And that is very much reminiscent of a lot of slashers that we've seen, especially Scream, because how often have we seen a Scream film to where the killer is contacting one of the victims over the phone, obviously, and they're already inside. Literally every Scream film has had a setup like this over, over the course of the entire series. And I mean in all five films, we've had we've had like this homage to when a stranger, when a stranger calls in that. So clearly, this is a, this is an opening that's very iconic and has definitely, definitely set itself upon a lot of slashers that we've seen over the ensuing, what, 50 years since then at that point? Now, what's so interesting about this story is that while the beginning is, it's down, it, it is pretty scary, honestly. I mean, it, it can definitely be horrifying because I think a lot of us at some point probably babysat some kids when we were younger, and the idea that not us, but those kids are the ones that get murdered. That's kind of a really, really crazy concept to think about. 
And what's super interesting about this, in this entire film, and I'm going to give a spoiler because we're over the 10-year rule and everything, those kids are the only victims of this entire film besides the killer himself at the end of the movie. That in itself is kind of chilling to think about. There are only two victims in this movie, and they're both children, and they both die at the beginning of the film. That's creepy as shit now. But it sets the stage properly. And what we get is a very, very interesting horror story because in the 70s, I feel that, uh, and I've talked about this when I talked about um, Slumber Party Massacre before because this also seemed kind of reminiscent of that to where there is no mystery about who the killer is. We're shown who the killer is from the very beginning, kind of like Slumber Party Massacre and a lot of other horror films that came out between like the uh, the mid to late 70s and early 80s as well too. You know, this isn't your Halloween. It's not your Nightmare on Elm Street, your Friday the 13th to where um, like, yeah, we might know who the killer is, but we have to get there. And it's not, uh, it's not your typical slasher where the mystery is trying to find out who the killer is. We know who the killer is. So after the beginning of the film, the killer is sent to a mental institution. And look, that has never worked in a horror film before. Sending a killer to a mental institution, at that point you might as well just be giving them an extended vacation because they're absolutely gonna come back and they're absolutely gonna wreak havoc at that point. And that's pretty much what happens. It's interesting because the film shifts narratives after that opening. So we see the killer get sent to a psychiatric facility and then we fast forward to seven years later. And at that point, we're not even following the character of Jill Johnson anymore, who was the babysitter at the beginning of the movie. We're now kind of actually following the killer because the killer ends up escaping from the psychiatric facility and he ends up uh, meeting a random woman in like a bar he's trying to become friends with or possibly could be trying to murder as well too. And we find out that the, uh, that the policeman, who I think was a lieutenant, that, um, that arrested him in the first place, John Clifford, who's played by Charles Durning, uh, finds out that this killer named Duncan has escaped the psychiatric facility. And due to the way that Duncan killed these kids, which he describes as he just ripped them apart with his bare hands, and they couldn't even identify the remains at that point, which again, it's chilling because it's more about being about being heard and not seen at that point there. Like it's easier to kind of put it in your mind and be more terrified of that. That's, that's effective storytelling at that point. And uh, 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 John Clifford has this grudge, obviously, against Duncan at this point to where it's up to him to stop him, but he's not looking to take him in. He's not looking to take him back to a mental facility. He's looking to end his life for the carnage that he caused. And so the next portion of the movie is really following Duncan and Clifford in this kind of cat and mouse chase to where Duncan, again, is, like I said, he's been following this woman at this local bar, trying to make friends or possibly turn her into another victim, whereas Clifford knows that Duncan's gonna attack again and he basically tries to use this woman as bait to try to get him out and get him and kill him basically. And that was a really interesting side to come from because it reminded me a lot of like Tom Atkins, like horror films, like, you know, Halloween 3 and Night of the Creeps and, uh, um, oh God, y'all know the other one I'm thinking of that I can't think off the top of my head there. But like in Tom Atkins movies, he's always like a cop or he's like, he's like this big gruff, like mustache, like hero basically, who are following around being the good guy and we're not really following the killer that much. And it's kind of interesting because that's the way that when a stranger calls come off, comes off as well too. And it's because of that, that that middle section of the film, there's like a good 40 or 45 minutes or so that just don't really have any kind of horror to it. Like there's parts where uh, Tracy played by Colleen Dewhurst, uh, who is the, the lady that Duncan is, uh, Duncan is following, trying to make friends with. There's points to where, um, you know, she's kind of worried about who might be around the corner, who's behind her, what's going on, to where like we get a little bit of tension, but ultimately the middle of the movie isn't so much a horror film as it is like a bit of a thriller or a suspense story instead. Now, it all comes full circle because eventually Duncan can't control these urges and he, we don't know for sure, but I think the implication is, is that he tries to attack Tracy and Clifford shows up to save her, but Duncan manages to escape. And that sets us back to the beginning of the film because we go back to Jill Johnson's character, again, seven years later, she's married now, she has kids of her own, 
and she's still dealing with like some PTSD, obviously, of the situation that happened when she was younger. So when her and her husband go out to enjoy a nice dinner and she receives a phone call from Duncan, she's immediately taken back to that place. And then it becomes a race for her and her husband to get home to check on the children where more horror ensues. This was a really interesting movie to me because I had never seen this before. You know, I had seen bits and pieces here of like the remake, but I'd never seen the original. And I knew that you know, compared to the remake, which I'm going to be watching and reviewing uh, later this year as well, too. But I knew that it wasn't going to be as suspenseful because that's the way it really is with a lot of these remakes. You know, if you look at things like Black Christmas and Halloween and Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street, um, a lot of these remakes went for more deaths, more blood, more gore, uh, you know, more visceral viewing than what we would see in the original film. And I have to imagine that's going to happen in the remake for this as well, too. That being said, there was a hell of a lot to enjoy about this film. Like I said, the opening really is iconic. That's a very scary situation to be in and it's easy here in 2022 to kind of look at the technology that they have about tracing phone calls and finding where the killer is and what you're going to do and uh you know like looking back like oh my god y'all were really screwed back then if like a killer called you up and was inside the house murdering children what the hell were you going to do at that point uh but not only that I definitely found myself, because I, wa I was watching this late, late night as well, too. I found myself for the first time in a while doing that whole, no, 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 get out of the house. Like, don't do that. Don't get on the phone. Just leave the house. Go get the kids and leave the house right now. And I love that feeling because that, that's, that's kind of cool. That's iconic to think that a scene that really, really is like it's big for a lot of horror fans finally got a chance to see it. And I can see what a lot of people really enjoy about it. Now, as a whole... The movie itself didn't do a lot for me. Like the beginning, I liked that end, but that middle portion just came off so weirdly uh, for whatever reason. And I, I get it because horror was still being worked out in the mainstream level around that time and people, uh, people at the time weren't really telling the best of stories. Like the 80s is really where we got like really premium horror coming out. But it's not a bad film in the least bit. I also found it crazy that the, the actress to play Jill Johnson, Carol Kane, that's Granny from from Adam's family and a bunch of other stuff as well too. But I was like, oh my god, that's why I recognize her. Like this is the super young Granny from freaking Adam's family, and she's so good, man. Like she just conveys terror with every ounce of her being and does such an amazing job with it. Now again, the kill count is three in this film. It's the kid, two kids at the beginning and the killer at the end. So you're not going to get a lot of depth in this. It's not gory in the least bit now. Um, there definitely are, like I said, at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie, there are some fun scares to it. But if you're looking for a horror movie to really get that, uh, get the blood pumping, once you're past the beginning, this is probably not the film for you. Would still recommend it though. You definitely want to check it out. It's free to watch right now on Prime Video, so you want to give it a look if you got the time to do it. This is 1979's When a Stranger Calls. We are talking prom night, and we are talking the original prom night, the 1980 original. You know, I had to come back and revisit this one because here in the summer of 2022, I've really wanted to go and watch a lot of original movies that I've never really either seen or I've only watched once or twice, didn't really get the time or day to. Like um, recently, I, uh, like recently I did, you know, When a Stranger Calls and hadn't seen the original, hadn't seen the remake, know the story of them, but never seen them. So I was like, okay, time to knock that out. And I saw the original Prom Night sometime in the last 10 years and I wasn't that impressed by it when I, when I first saw it. And so I never had any, any reason to go revisit it. But then I decided I really wanted to watch the Prom Night remake because I remember only seeing bits and pieces of that back in the day. Uh, it was either right when I was working for Blockbuster or after I was done working for Blockbuster, like immediately after. But I really just wanted to revisit the original because it would give me a reason to see the remake as well too. And I know what you're thinking, come on, because people love Prom Night. People absolutely love the original film so how could i be crazy and say i didn't really like it that much and not only that how could i only be wanting to watch it so i could watch the remake i know i'm insane y'all i never never said that i wasn't in the least bit but that's just the way that it is now 
Here's the thing about prom night before we start getting into what it's really about. This is really, in my opinion, what kind of took Jamie Lee Curtis to like that next level that she wanted to be at. Because if you go back and look at Jamie Lee Curtis's earlier career, obviously there's so much horror in there. Like looking from 1978 until like the mid 80s, she started with Halloween and then she kept going a couple more Halloween films, Terror Train, The Fog, and prom night and i feel prom night's actually where her big recognition came from because it was only a couple of years after she did prom night to where she started getting roles in things like trading places and grand view usa and buckaroo Van bonsai and everything and i really really do feel that prom night was the one that kind of tur helped turn the tide even more for slasher films and i have to admit that I don't know what I was smoking, what I was drinking, what I was doing when I watched Prom Night the first time and didn't really enjoy it because man, this is way more enjoyable the second time around. Now, if you've never seen Prom Night before, the story is simple. It starts off with a group of kids playing a game of hide and go seek. That's uh, basically, like I forgot what they call it. It's like kill, killer, uh, killer escape, something like that. It's where every time you find somebody, they also become a killer. And unfortunately, these group of kids end up accidentally causing their friend Robin to fall to her death. Unbeknownst to them, somebody has seen the death of Robin. And six years later, when our kids are all getting set to graduate from high school, and hence the name, the prom is coming up, somebody has decided to seek revenge amongst everybody that was involved in the death of young Robin and murders start to occur in our small little town. Now, that's it. There's not really much more complications to this story because anything else is really like very secondary to the actual story itself. Like there's this whole uh, plot to where Jamie Lee Curtis's character is dating this one guy who just broke up with a kind of a friend, kind of an enemy of hers. And because of that, we get this Carrie style story to where um, this girl is now seeking revenge on Jamie Lee Curtis and her ex-boyfriend and wants to make their life a living hell in the night of prom. So she gets friendly with the school bully to help her put that in place. And that's fine. That's a serviceable storyline. But again, it's very similar to like Carrie and Carrie did it a little bit better, at least for that portion of the story. But that's not really why we're watching this here. Um, in a stark contrast to some of the other slashes around the time, the whole idea here was that uh, at, like, I guess we got to compare it directly to Halloween. Like Halloween, we know that the killer is Michael Myers. It's not about Michael taking his mask off and us seeing it like this is Michael Myers. In prom night, we get a whodunit because we're really trying to figure out who's the one that uh, that's killing these kids, what's their motivation behind it. There's got to be something because it's not played to be cheesy, kind of like uh, Summer Party Massacre, which I love, as well as When a Stranger Calls, which also not too bad either, honestly. Like, it's not supposed to be somewhat cheesy. It is supposed to be more on the serious side. These people are all paying a price for something that they did. And it's interesting because... A lot of slashers definitely took their cue from uh, from a film like this moving forward to where, you know, somebody gets wronged, it ends up with someone getting hurt, somebody getting killed, and years later, somebody, whether it's that person themselves or someone related to them or a friend, decides to seek revenge for what ended up happening. And I was under the impression, uh, I was definitely under the impression when I first saw it, again, I know I got this memory. I really told myself that with Prom Night, none of the killings actually happened until like the last 20 minutes of the film. Uh, I don't know why I thought that there, but I think I what I what I actually was misremembering was it's not so much they happen in the last 20 minutes of the film. It's that literally nothing happens until Prom Night itself. Like basically nobody actually gets killed. Uh, uh, nobody actually gets killed until the night of prom. And maybe that's why I felt something was off because it was so interesting to me that the entire movie takes place within one night. Like a lot of our modern slashers, they're drawn out over, you know, a number of days, maybe in a, even a few weeks, but usually most slashers don't take place in one night. And so that's a really efficient and effective killer to kill that many people on the night of prom. Like I've been to prom, I've been to two proms now when I was back in high school. Prom is like a lot of work and you're going off and killing multiple people and somehow still covering your tracks. Well fucking done on that to our killer. And 
It was such a simple idea for the killer in this movie. They're just wearing, you know, a ski mask at that point, and he's going around killing people with a glass shark. And I love the fact that that's, that's somehow an iconic weapon because we always think about what weapons are synonymous with our killers. With Michael Myers, is a butcher knife. With Jason Voorhees, it's a machete. With uh, Freddy Krueger, you know, it's the razor fingers. And for our killer in prom night, it's a shard of glass and a ski mask. And it's so simplistic and yet it's still effective. And I think that's because... Um, this really is a normal, more grounded slasher. Things like Scream, things like I Know What You Did Last Summer, Urban Legend, Halloween, um, uh, Friday the 13th, you know, a lot of these other slashers, they're very much not grounded in reality, whether it's because they're so like super meta or it's because the killer themselves just can take endless amounts of damage and nothing, nothing bad happens to them or they're even just presented as like this hulking behemoth, this person who just, you know, they can move like quicker than anybody's been known to man. They can lift things that people don't do. They have precision aim, all these kinds of things that just aren't real, you know? And in prom night, what I love about the killer is that they are human. They are, they're human, they're clumsy, they can get hit, they can get knocked out. They like, they, they constantly like screw things up. And I really enjoyed that. And it's very clear to be like, this person is humanized and i like i really really enjoyed that about prom night is that our killer was humanized compared to a lot of other slashers where they're not which is not a knock but it's refreshing to see that and it's funny i say refreshing this film because this film came before so many other slashers of our time um but what's very uh very much interesting about it is that the gore factor of prom night is definitely where we started to see the tide turn as well too and movies started being more comfortable showing death scenes and more explicit death scenes and prom night definitely at the time of its release in 1980 i would definitely say it's gory for its time by today's standards obviously it's incredibly tame but if you look back in the time frame that it was we were seeing more in this than we were seeing in a lot of other horror movies at the time um, I've reviewed, you know, When a Stranger Calls, and I've also, uh, like Black Christmas, for example. These are horror films that came before Prom Night came out, but yet, and still, if you go back and watch them, even with the depths in them and the way they're described and the way we're supposed to think about it, it's all about using your imagination. They don't show so much. Prom Night doesn't exactly show things verbatim, but we get enough sounds and we get enough close and uh, like before and after shots to have an idea of what's going on. So the gore definitely stepped up in this. And not only that, it's interesting seeing Jamie Lee Curtis presented in a different light as well too, because Laurie Strode in Halloween, at least in the first Halloween, is very, very, very different than a lot of her other horror characters than she's played. And I get it. Lori's character absolutely has evolved over the series in Halloween. In Halloween 2, she was basically in a catatonic state, like the entire film. And if we like, you know, get to H2O, Resurrection, and even now the legacy sequels, Halloween 2018 and Halloween Ends, very, very different from the way Lori was in the original film. But something about her character, uh, her character here in Prom Night, uh, Kim, is just it's the antithesis she's very social she's very outgoing she's very upfront she's like uh like she she protects her friends she cares about her friends and not to say Lori doesn't but Lori was very timid and meek in the original film so i think it was very refreshing to see jamie lee curtis not play that same role even if it's another slasher film it's also very interesting to see uh uh leslie nielsen in here and I think a lot of people really forget that around, like in the 90s, like when people like me really got to know Leslie Nielsen for things like Naked Gun and Spy Hard and Wrongfully Accused and so on, um, Leslie Nielsen actually had a dramatic career before he really started finding like this other niche of his doing com comedic roles. And, you know, he's the father of Jamie Lee Curtis's character and, um, uh, 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 what am I thinking here? And uh, uh, one of the other characters in the film as well, too, who turns out to be the killer. But they very much try to play it up as if Leslie Nielsen's character could be the killer as well, too. And I think that that's great billing because, you know, these this day and age, we probably wouldn't think that so much. But again, look at the time the film was released. The fact that Jamie Lee Curtis and Leslie Nielsen get top billing in it kind of seems well, one's got to be the victim. One's got to be the killer at this point. And the marketing of this is just so interesting because if you ever see the alt poster, you know, it's the one where Jamie Lee Curtis in the pink dress with the, uh, with the, uh, 
what the hell is it called? The tiara and the, the roses and she got the ax. So we get the impression that she might be the killer in this. There's nothing supernatural about this film. It's a, it's a really good movie. I really enjoy the kills. I love Jamie Lee Curtis's character. Um, I love the, the relationship she has with her friends. Like I feel a lot of those roles really got fleshed out in the right way. Um, but it's it's also very interesting to think that if you ever seen Prom Night 2, Hello, Mary Lou, that is a very different film from this because that absolutely takes a supernatural route while this doesn't. And again, it's a story of revenge, Prom Night. Um, the killer is very much motivated by the loss of a family member. Very, and, you know, whether you want to say justified or not, definitely decides that the way to make it right is just to kill all the people who are involved in the death, uh, at, uh, the death at the beginning of the film. And it is really fun in the last, like, you know, last 30 minutes of the movie when the killers go around and just killing everybody. Because again, the killer in our midst to the point to where they even take out the school bully by chopping his head off. And I love that, that they show that the, the killer just, you know, somehow planned this out all well to where they were going to have the opportunity to take out all their victims and not have to really worry about anything at all with this. Now, with that said, it's also interesting they take the route that they set up this subplot to where there's a possibility that there was another killer involved, that basically somebody else was responsible for it. Um... But then, you know, later in the movie, obviously, we find out, like, hey, this person uh, ended up getting arrested, so it obviously can't be this guy. There's got to be somebody else that's doing it. And I really enjoy subplots like that to try to lead us away, because we know it can't be that. It, it can't be that simple, obviously. But again, horror movies around that time might make you think it's very straightforward like that. And Prom Night is one of these first horror films, one of these first slashers that really subverts us from like thinking dead on. It has to be this person. It's a really, really, really good watch, honestly. But I will say, and we'll get to it at some point there, if you do like Prom Night, you would really love Prom Night 2, Hello, Mary Lou, because again, it basically takes what's so good about this movie and it amps it up with a supernatural twist, which just makes it so much more fun to check out. Now, if you're wondering, like, how I would kind of rank it with Jamie Lee Curtis's other horror films, um, well, I have not, and y'all are going to hate me for this, I've never seen The Fog. I've seen, I've seen the remake. I've seen the remake because I was a huge Smallville fan, and I was like, cool, Tom Welling's doing a movie, and that movie sucked so badly. The cast was great, but that movie is terrible. Um... But I've never gone back and watched the original film. It's on the list, so I got to get to that as well, too. But it's at least above the fog. I don't. I like. I don't think I enjoy it more than any of the Halloween series, honestly. Like that's that's always gonna be at the top there. Like anything that's in the Halloween series, even if it is Resurrection, I freaking love it. I really like Virus a lot as well, too. So. Um, I don't know. Like, I always tend to rank things on the same level. So, Prom Night's really good. It, it really is good. But I don't think that I like it more than other entries she's done, like Halloween, honestly. There's there's more for me in those films than there was in this. But that being said, you can check it out for yourself and tell me in the comments what you think. Prom Night is available for free right now on Prime Video. Go and check it out. Make sure to let me know your thoughts. Again, hit me in the comments, folks. Hey everybody, I appreciate you checking out this video, whether it was a review, whether it was a new episode, whether it was an unboxing, an interview, or whatever else. I want to remind you, you can check out my separate reviews also on my YouTube page, and new full episodes go up every Wednesday night on YouTube at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and on your favorite podcasting platforms at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button, like, and share. My name is T. We've been talking scary movies. Stay scared. Bye.